So last week, um, last week I introduced a topic that I was personally just really serious about and overwhelmed by. And I remember when I finalized my thoughts on it, was going to, you know, in preparation for finishing PowerPoint stuff like that. I actually sat on the side of my bed and I just wept, and I, I was trying to figure out why. And I was weeping kind of in gratitude because I felt like I had touched on something or been touched by something that was just like critically important, like life-changing important. And, um, and then last week was, was funny. I, I don't, I don't like, uh, giving a lot of attention to spiritual warfare, but we certainly had a bunch of weird electrical things go on last week and it was strange and it felt funny. Uh, so I'm not, I'm sure there's certain kinds of resistance. I know I experienced a little bit this week, um, just pushback, uh, that was dispelled as soon as I recognized it, which wasn't soon enough, by the way. But as soon as I recognized it and just said, what am I doing? What am I saying? What am I thinking? You know, why am I confessing uh, not feeling well or whatever the case was? And uh, and it just lifted. So anyhow, I think this is something really important. I think it fits within what we were just praying about. Um, and if, if you were here and you remember or you watched, I talked about... Uh, discovering in what Paul said of himself, and it's not a new discovery by by me for sure, and not even to me, but with a fresh revelation and fresh import, that when Paul was describing his conversion on the road to Damascus, he said, when it pleased the Father who had chosen me and called me from my mother's womb to preach the good news, and then he, uh, most translations use the word among, but the word is ain. We'll look at it in just a second, quick review to reveal his son in me. And when I think about all that we prayed about, when I think about the Holy Spirit and the work the Holy Spirit does in our life, I realize that I do not, in fact, give the Holy Spirit enough credit for what goes on in us, for the translation of the will of the Father and the purpose and power of Jesus into our lives and into the circumstances of our life. And... If I make a second mistake, it's thinking that the Holy Spirit's on my side when I take sides. Because I don't know that he is. And I'm not disputing what you're praying about, Tim, because uh, there is a responsibility to discern the motives and the consequences that come when, you know, uh, there's a, a funny gal who does these satires about being the spokesperson for the Democratic Party. And, and uh, she has the thing about we realize, of course, we, we follow the science. We say that babies are just a mass of cells until they're born, or maybe a few minutes afterwards. <laughs> and, and so there's stuff to, to deal with, for sure. But at a higher level than that, or at a more fundamental level than that, probably that's a better way of saying it, at a more fundamental level, there is a reality to what God has purposed to do in the world. And it's a redemptive purpose. It's a purpose that has the power to overcome genuine evil and genuine darkness it's a light that cannot be quenched and it cannot be held down and that light is embodied in the person of jesus and that's where we've stopped short of going the next layer because he is embodied in you and that's why this issue of christ in you the hope of glory is super critical. So we're going to review a little bit, and uh, I think I've mentioned this to some of you. Some of you I've talked to, I know, privately about it. And you, I, you know, 
I feel like sometimes I can kill the most inspirational message by studying to teach it. Because <laughs> I just get buried in the, in the details. And so, uh, God, give me your grace to not teach this to death, but to release it. Because I don't care how articulate I get and how much revelation you give, the end is not the acquisition of the right way to think about this. The end is to actually engage in the glory of Christ in us. And the glory to glory transformation that comes when we behold you as in the mirror and are changed. When we experience the liberty that you bring. And the bondage that keeps all these people on the streets rioting and, and cursing and swearing and hating is a bondage brought about through the lack of light and the lack of the knowledge of their union with you. So help us understand this. Help us move forward with this, Lord. And clearly help, help me teach it and help me see it in Scripture and reveal it. But it's not enough. This is one of those areas where I believe we are guilty, as Jesus said of the Pharisees, of searching the Scripture, thinking that in them we find life, and thinking that in them we find life by knowing the answer, or thinking we know the, re- the right answer, and failing to come to you to receive life. So tonight, I ask that you would help us take a step toward you in what we look at, in what we pray, and in what we think. Thank you, Lord. So the, the thing I want to talk about is the actual experiencing of the mystery of the gospel. And when I say mystery of the gospel tonight, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what Paul said in Colossians, that this is a mystery which has been kept hidden in past ages. We'll look at it in a second. But is Christ in you the hope of glory. And Richard, you asked a question a few, several weeks ago, what is glory? When we were getting at the end of John 17. And I think we have more to learn about glory. So ask the Father to to reveal glory to you, to all of us. Christ revealed in us, us revealed in Jesus. All I want to say about that little tagline is, obviously Christ revealed in us is what Paul was talking about. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Us revealed in Christ I do not believe it's possible for us to know who we are and the type of thing we are, the type of person we are, the type of being we are, without fixing our gaze on Jesus and seeing him as he is. John says that in um, his epistle, first epistle. says, when we see him, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. To behold who Jesus is, is, is transformative. And I think all of us know that when When Zacchaeus saw Jesus, he was changed from a greedy tax collector or a self-serving, at the very least, tax collector to a a generous man for whom salvation visited his home that day. When the demoniac of Gadara was, was brought before Jesus, compelled to come before him and kneel and worship in spite of the demons in his life, literally, he was transformed into a man who carried a story about, look what the Lord's done. And there's just story after story. And then we get into modern history and we get into your life. We're, we're changed because we've seen Jesus. But I don't think that we've changed as much as we could if we really saw him in us and in each other. And again, that's something... I have breakfast with Richard and Dave and Dave and 
and uh, we inevitably talk a little bit about politics and about some of our favorite political figures. And almost to the man, uh, although Dave Doherty has a, a more colorful version of it than me and Richard, but almost to a man, these folks in politics that are uh, sources of frustration and confusion and irritation to us are the very people that come up in the conversation as we consider what is it like to see Jesus and to look for Jesus and find Jesus in someone else. Where is he? How do you see him? When the layers over the top uh, make it very difficult. So, Christ revealed in us, us, revealed in Christ. There's a version of you that I think you have yet to meet because there are parts of Jesus in you that you have yet to recognize. So we're going to look at that and see. All right, this is the review of where Paul was in Galatians 1, 15 and 16. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. Oh, and like I say, about half the versions say in and about half say to. But the words in, we'll look at that in just a second. I'll, I'm, I got kind of excited using those little Greek cutouts. So I'll have a few more tonight. Uh, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And this is where we had a really fantastic discussion on Tuesday night because the word among the Gentiles is ain as well. And uh, there are not a lot of places where ain is translated among. Um, and a couple of the places where they are, it would be like saying in a group of people. And so... Uh, just, just know, you'll see it in a second. Now, over here in Colossians, this is the one that Paul's talking also about his ministry, but he's making some pretty broad statements about the gospel itself. Uh, this, uh, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifest to his saints, to whom God willed to make known. All right, now think about that. God willed to make this mystery known. Now, do you know why he willed it? No. I mean, you could say, well, because he loved people. Uh, whatever. Do you know why he made will to make it known through the people in Paul's age, the early church, the apostles? Why he willed to make revelation known through Israel? Why he? I don't think we really do. And I think we spend a lot of time, we can spend a lot of time and get somewhat distracted trying to figure out the whys in the house. But, it, but the fact is, manifest to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That among is also aim. So what God actually willed was to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery in the Gentiles. And uh, again, we had a good discussion on, on Thursday. Can it be both? Yeah, but can it be in too? Yeah. And let's consider that. So here comes the Greek. This is in the Galatians. And uh, I'll just get up here. I'm going to use my little pen and see if it'll work or short something out or whatever. All right. But it pleased God who separated me from my uh, mother's womb to reveal his son in me. Okay. I'm just doing this again and review because I want it burned in your head. Because when you read a Bible, you hear somebody say it or preach, they're probably going to say too, about half the time. But it really says, in me. So the picture that I want in our minds so that we can understand what we're being called 
to, to embrace, to see, to do, is that when Paul, that story in Acts, where Paul is on the road to Damascus and is confronted by the Lord, he is confronted by the Lord in him. And the story does even say that people didn't see anything and, and they heard a noise like, like lightning. And Paul heard, of course, words and dialogue with the Lord and everything. But in, in me, that I might preach him, and here's where they translated among, but you can see the same construct. In ethnocene, in the heathen, in the Gentiles. I think heathen's a, not the greatest interlineal translation there. All right, so you got that? That's the end thing we're talking about. Here's the Colossian one. To whom would God make known what the riches of the glory of the mystery, this in the Gentiles. Now, not among the Gentiles. The glory of the mystery, this among or in the Gentiles. If he's, if he's saying in, then the mystery is not a thing to be told in the community of the Gentiles the mystery is the actual reality that is in the Gentiles themselves. Now, this would have been super radical to the Jewish theologians and leaders of the day because they would not have thought that God was in the Gentiles, I don't think. I don't know, and I don't know all the rabbinical schools, but I think this would have been a, a big-time revelation. Among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. And that is the hope of glory. Or He is the hope of glory in you. Yes, Jen. It would help me when you do this to distinguish um, believer and unbeliever. Okay. Can you can you Try. Bring that context when you're talking about the end. I will word, try. I so will that try. That's clear. I will. I will try. Um, particularly with this verse, I will try. Um, well, because to me, that's the biggest. Um, that's been the biggest paradigm shift. Yeah. Where where we're talking about in in yeah. everybody. Yeah. And I'd like to hear the context of the believer, unbeliever okay. that you're coming from. Um, okay. Is that fair? Uh, sure, it's completely fair. Uh, how would I describe where I'm coming? For many, for many years, uh, I'd say 40, probably, in ministry. I have felt like the most significant phrase in the, the New Testament is uh, the phrase, in Christ. And when I was growing up, uh, I really didn't have tons of theology when I was a Baptist, but by the time I got into uh, being an Assemblies God guy, pastor, I had that sort of theology. And, um, and it was a theology of separation. It was a theology that, that uh, what Adam had done had plunged all of his progeny into uh, death. 
and that that de- and that the definition, the, the best working definition of death was separation from God, and that uh, about the time that I started, about the time that I got out of Bible college, was ordained in the Assemblies of God, and or licensed in the Assemblies of God, they moved back to California and started our churches there in California. Right? couple of them that we started, was when uh, the common telling of the gospel was uh, there was this big gulf and the cross was laid across that gulf and people came across the top and that Jesus created that separation. Uh, I believe that is utterly incorrect. 100%. I believe everything about that is incorrect. And I believe the premise from which it was based in the theology around that premise uh, the idea of separation of people that are, that your sins separate you from God. Uh, I believe that that is a misreading of the scripture. And I believe that what your sins do is they blind you to the presence of God in your life. I believe they alienate you in your mind and they create in you, uh, a, a serious lack of control over engaging in evil deeds. And I believe they, they, they cause you to, quickly rush to judgment, to um, be blind to good things, and, and to not have the thought and not recognize God anywhere. I think spiritual warfare primarily um, deceives us to believe that and to keep believing it. And uh, one of my understandings that I think some of you know is that in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10, when it talks about the vain imaginations that exalt themselves up against the knowledge of God, that that uh, that means that these vain imaginations are constantly assaulting our ability to notice that God is with us. So, yeah, I did say with us. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to answer that question right yet. I'll get to it in a minute, though. Uh, who are we talking to? Who is that scripture talking to? Yeah, I'm just saying, more simply, that was okay, but we're talking Okay. Sure. Uh, the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, I believe, was spoken of and revealed about all Gentiles. So, believing or unbelieving would not be a distinguishing category in this. From God's perspective. Yes, Ronnie? Okay. That's what I'm saying, too. Okay, go ahead. My uh, paradigm shift maybe a little different than some, but my paradigm shift has come to the point that God is in all people, period. And now I go back into Scripture when I see something that challenges that, I try to work through it and Mm -hmm. try to figure it out. So the concept of believers and unbelievers, I don't have that down yet. Mm -hmm. I have no clue. Mm -hmm. But what I do feel that is down in me for sure right now is that God's in everybody. Right. And so... The distinction, which I totally understand because that was a really big part of everything I believed before, of believer versus unbeliever, to me is tied to the are you you in or are you out? Mm -hmm. And I don't see anybody out anymore. 
but that's been a change. Mm-hmm. And so I have yet, and we have as a, as a body, have not gone line by line throughout mm-hmm. the entire Bible, Bible to figure out the things that are maybe challenging that or yeah. need to be looked at differently. Right. So one of the key things I think that would be good to look at at some point is the idea of what is a believer and what is an unbeliever right. in Scripture and why does that even matter? Here's what I find difficult and, what, and why I know my answer is probably not very helpful yet. Because uh, what I'm not saying, and I can say what I'm not saying, I'm not saying it doesn't matter whether you believe or not. I'm not saying that belief is not really important. I'm not saying that, that, that elements of our life can dramatically, dramatically change whether we believe or we don't believe. But what I am saying is that our belief does not determine what God does or how he looks at anybody. We don't have the power through belief or unbelief to change him. And immediately as I say it, there's scriptures. He couldn't do many miracles in uh, uh, Nazareth because of their unbelief. Or he did, you know, these do need to be looked at in, in, in the case. But I think one of the reasons that I, that I can pursue a, a concrete belief that, that Christ is in everybody is, is because I recognize that things look different from God's side than they do from our side. And to try to discern that and understand that and, and ask God, and this really is partly the fruit of me saying, Papa, I don't trust how I see things. How do you see them? And as a matter of fact, I'm going to share with some things that, that he showed me about that. But uh, that's why right now, even though I don't fully live like it and I don't fully know how to articulate it, I believe that the distinction between believer and unbelief believer relative to the work that God has done to sow himself in the person of Jesus and the person of the Holy Spirit into the people in the world began at creation. It never was fully rescinded, meaning his role as their creator was never taken away and his role as their redeemer and his role as their inspirer and their, their giver of life is, is active in everybody, believer or unbeliever. Richard. Yeah, the, the, the explanation you started with, that theology or that teaching causes you to separate everything. I mean, when you're reading scripture, you, you automatically separate, well, that's, he's talking to unbelievers and, and those are the people that, that, and so when you're looking at this, you're looking at, okay, he's, he's in the church, so he's talking to believers. Mm-hmm. Instead of looking at what he's saying and the mystery that he's talking about, he's talking about the mystery that is, that is in the Gentiles that the Jews already thought that it was just them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that makes a whole big difference. Um, and so when you understand, when, and it's just, I mean, it took us a while to get, get here. It, yeah. Uh, we're still getting here. And, and so it, it, uh, but but as you as you understand he came and he reconciled mankind to him mm-hmm. and sin isn't an object in a person's life anymore mm-hmm. it's much easier to come to that it's not a defining object it right. could it's, be an object it could be a, a, it's a destructive you, object but it's not a defining under, object yeah it's it's easier to understand that wow could he be in all of us mm-hmm. and as you look in your as I look in my earlier life, as a as a child, I can see him in me. I mean, when I come to understand that, I look back and I can say, he was in me then. And then it talks about 
And uh, what a Jeremiah that he, that he knew him before he was even born. Mm -hmm. So that's what he said about Paul. Yeah. Right. And My so mother's it, it, there, it just uh, as you as you give way to um, this a new understanding, it just opens up yeah. other things. It also opens up a lot of other possibilities and questions. I understand that. Uh, but, but so for the sake, I'm sorry to make such a complicated answer, Jen. For the sake of this discussion tonight and where we, where we are at trying to talk to this and where I feel like we are being exposed to this idea and needing to get our hands around it, uh, I believe that this concept of Christ in us is, uh, is universal for all humanity. It's universal for all. And then what we do with it and how, it how we react to it uh, carries the individual aspects of it. Uh, okay, Jesus says that we will know this gospel mystery of him and us and us and him. And this is Tim's favorite verse. I try to get it on the screen every time I can. It is, right? Look at this, though. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, again, the same question about who Jesus is talking to can be asked. Because he was here talking to his, his disciples. Uh, the disciples sans Judas. So there would have been the eleven. And he probably had some of the ladies with him, and, you know, so we don't really know how many. Was that the only people he was talking to, or was he speaking a revelation about that? And then the other question you can ask is say, in what, you know, what day? What is that day? Um, the open table conference is going on. I was just listening back to Kruger talk, and he, he addressed this issue in the day. It was beautiful. So I want to back up and show the verses before this. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now, this passage itself calls into question the who, the who question, because it says uh, the world can't see him or receive him, but you can because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, or the cosmos, we went through that. But you will see me because I live, you will live also. Um, from this, I don't know that we could make the assertion that the Spirit is poured out on everybody, that the, the helper that's sent is sent for everybody and into everybody. But from what Peter ends up saying at Pentecost, I think we can. Because he said, this is that which uh, the prophet Joel spoke of. And in, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And flesh was the only uh, qualifier. It wasn't anthropos, it wasn't Jews, all people, all my children. It was all flesh. And flesh is the part of us that is the problem. It's the part of us that is the sinner. While we were yet sinners, Paul says, Christ died for us. So this is what causes me to be comfortable with a universal extension of the gifts of the Spirit, of the life of Christ, of the light that is the life of Christ, a universal extension to humanity, because I see God in Christ dealing with humanity as one entity. And I, I, I think he sees us that way too. And if we're a saint or if we are a rebellious and egregious sinner, 
we still owe our existence to him. If, if, if he were not holding us together, we wouldn't be together. And so there's aspects of our very existence which testify, no matter how belligerent we are or how saintly we are, there's aspects of our very existence that testify to God being engaged in us. And then when you go to the first part of the Gospel of John, that life became the light of men, and that light enlightens the heart of every man coming into the world, is what it says. Now, what do we do with that light? And does it make a difference? I think so. I believe so. I can't see how it wouldn't. But that kind of a a thought that God has touched all humanity with his life and light makes it make sense when Paul then says um, that I, you know, God was in Christ reconciling the whole cosmos to himself, not counting their trespasses against us, against them. And so if he's, if he's reconciling the whole of humanity, not counting trespasses against us, we need to give some weight to this is God's perspective. This is how he sees us. How is he doing that? And I don't think even how is that important a question if we find out he is doing it. But then that scripture still creates a significance about belief because it goes on and says, therefore as ambassadors of God, we beg you, be reconciled to God. So there's some sort of response that we have to make. There's some sort of uh, part that we play. And so I think when we get into the areas of believers and unbelievers, repentant and unrepentant, we're going to see that those parts are very significant. But they do not dictate the reality that God, they do not dictate God's reality. Yes, Ryan? Could it be that the, the part that we play to be reconciled could simply adjust how we see things from that point? In other words, we, we're reconciled because of what God did. There's nothing we can do about that. Right. We can then advance that in our lives and recognize it and yeah. then have a deeper, in my mind, and experience relationship with God. Or we can ignore that and fail to experience Fail to experience that. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I don't see how it could be otherwise, actually. I don't see how it could be otherwise. Uh, all right. So anyway, what is that day? And, and this is what Kruger said just two hours ago. And I really love it. He said, the day that the Helper was given. This is why I was struck tonight as we were singing that song that we probably underestimate the work the Holy Spirit does because the Holy Spirit makes all this real to us on so many fronts. And the Scripture says that. He says that uh, you know through the work of the Spirit, Christ might live in our hearts through faith. Well, that's amazing. What's that work? I want to, I want to be in on that. You know, I want to know what's going on with that. Okay, the mystery was made in human flesh. This is John 1.14. Uh, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That among is also aim. Uh, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So let me show you this one. And, it, and I'm going to move from a teaching thing here. Okay, so egonetto is a work-related word, and it, it has to do with made or manufactured. So this Eganetto word here, he was made flesh and he dwelt in. 
okay, made flesh and dwelt in. So all I'm asking us to do, just for the sake of, of trying to be impacted by the, by the possibility of, of this invasion of the redemptive plan in the brilliance of the Father being an invasion into every human life by the person of Jesus. That's all I'm saying. So that's, let's see that. All right? Now, I want to read something out of my journal. And I don't usually preach out of my journal, but this was cool. So I said, um, I was having this dialogue about all this kind of stuff. And, uh, oh, here it is. I said, Papa, what does the gospel look like to you? You ever ask God questions like that about basic things? I would encourage it because it leads to wonderful dialogue sometimes. So this passage of scripture is the fruit of what he said to me. It looks like my son bringing glory and majesty into the humble beginnings of a developing baby, then through blood and water and pain into a living, breathing soul. It uh, was like it, it was. What, what, what? It, oh, it looks like him, and through him, me experience. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I asked God, "What does it look like?" And He came back and said, "It looks like." Thank you, Lord. It looks like him, and through him, me experiencing the bite of cold air, the refreshing of cool water the warmth of being wrapped and cuddled by the love of his young mother. We regained a foothold in creation in those moments that had been lost and obscured for many seasons. And then I responded, it all started with you, Jesus, literally being in us, in Mary, in Israel, in humanity. Humanity's response was set right. We began to turn back to love and adoration and worship in that incarnation event. And he said, yes, fear was overcome by love. No doctrinal clarity needed. Okay, that's what I think God said. Believe it, don't believe it, doesn't matter. Uh, What it did is it gave me a picture that reinforced leaning in favor of Ain being in when it says it, even in these difficult-to-understand places, like he was made flesh and dwelt in us. Because literally, the manifestation of the redemptive plan of God, the first actual invasion stage of it, not the precursor stage in prophecy, not the precursor stage in the womb of Israel, all those were super significant, and I mean to take nothing away, but the actual invasion of redemption was literally, physically, in a young woman. Let me, let me go there and read it. So we started uh, 126-37. Obviously, that's not all those scriptures. So let me read it for you real quick. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, this is the angel Gabriel, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. 
But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And I immediately thought of that thing in Isaiah about the government resting on his shoulders and of its increase, there will be no end. There's no question what, who we're talking about, what event we're talking about, and, and, and how this is the, the incisive moment of the redemptive plan penetrating the darkness of the earth and coming. And I think it's the incisive moment of what John said in his prologue about, and the word was made flesh. It was made flesh in the womb of Mary. In her, in Israel, in humanity. And so my thought is, okay, and so then it goes on, it says, Mary said to the angel, well, how can this be since I'm a virgin? virgin?" And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called Son of God. And then there's the stuff about Elizabeth and all that. So the question I want to ask you is the one that rose up in my heart thinking about this, because I understand this is difficult to conceive of. And as Western people who are indoctrinated in rational analytical thought, we have a very hard time believing something unless we at least have some sense, even though we're wrong most of the time about this, of how things happen. You know, like I'd like to think I know how my car works. And I know I do some and some I don't. Uh, I'm taking a bunch of supplements right now and and a couple of them seem to really be doing a good job on that blood sugar thing I had uh, to deal with. And I'd like to think I know now uh, how that works. But I don't, honestly. <laughs> I just take them and they work. And that's it. So there's a little tiny bit of a how here. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And the power of God is going to overshadow you. And Christ is going to be in you. That's really what the story's about. And so if the redemptive plan manifest on the earth starts with him in us, why does it seem so strange that he's in us as a central part of the whole redemptive plan? Because it seems like that's what he had in mind from the start. Because he could have come a million ways, right? But he came in Mary. And it was physical. And and this is the starting point. So I'm thinking, oh, wow, Lord. All right. Now, what she goes on to say, or what, what he goes on to say was, for nothing will be impossible with God. Do you remember a, a time that Jesus said that? They ask, uh, when, when he said, it's hard for a rich man to go to heaven. It's hard for an Antifa person to be turned around and start loving the people around him. It's hard for a politician to stop thinking of themselves and start thinking of the people again once they become corrupt. Well, with men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. All things are possible. This is God we're talking about. This is God still operating under a, a divine and a driving motive that for God so loved the world that he gave. That while we were yet sinners, he died. 
So as I contemplate this, and as I think of this real-life example, and I think, Lord, I can't even think of the innumerable ways you could have come and manifest yourself in the earth as a Redeemer. But you chose to do it in this most humble, intimate, visceral way in a young girl, in Israel, in humanity. Now later he says, uh, if I be lifted up, I will drag all to myself. I will embrace all that. Um, that makes sense to me because his thoughts never changed. His methodology never changed. And so that's one of the reasons why if this is how it, it happened. And here's the other thing that's interesting. If you go on and read a little bit more in Luke, and you know there's that famous thing that Linus played and talked about in Charlie Brown Christmas. Well, the announcement is that uh, peace and goodwill to men in whom God is highly pleased. You realize at that time there wasn't a single Christian or a single repentant person on the earth. There were Jews who it would have made total sense if God said, I'm pleased with the Jews. But that wasn't what he said. His attitude towards us is not governed by our behavior towards him. And that's kind of why I'm thinking... There's something to be learned from going ahead and applying this on a broader scale. So anyway, Jesus said we would know it, and she did. Jesus says we will experience this gospel ministry. In 7, uh, 37 through 39, it says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from the innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And I love this narrative, this commentary by the by the uh, gospel writer. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. All right? So pretty clearly, you can fast forward from John 7, 37 to Acts chapter 2, and Jesus is going to say in just a second, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you're fulfilled with the promise of the Father. But look at what it says will happen. Where... Do the rivers flow from? The innermost being. In other words, in. So the promise of the Father is that the Spirit would flow from inside. Now, He wasn't doing it yet, and I don't... This is another one of the big complications. What does timeline have to do with it? How does the timeline affect pre-Jesus dying? After I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that the promise that later was fulfilled clearly, beginning in Pentecost, was a promise of inside coming out. Okay? Does that make sense? All right. So here we are. In Acts, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with, now that with, which usually represents the word pros in Greek, is actually ain. I'll show it to you. <laughs> Freak me out. You will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So I'll just show you, and then I'm going to make a point and ask you to remember something. Uh, right here. But ye shall be baptized in the Holy Ghost. 
Now, that's not a new concept to me because when I was in Assemblies of God, we always thought about the baptism of the Holy Ghost being similar to a uh, submersion baptism. In, though, in the Holy Ghost. All right, now, what did, John, what did Jesus say in, that was going to happen in the day the Holy Spirit came and the Comforter was given? In that day, we were going to know three things. We were going to know that Jesus was in His Father. We're going to know it. Know it. How do you know something? How can you possibly know something like that? How can you observe it and analyze it and do scientific research on it? You can't. You have to receive it by revelation. That's why that day was dependent upon the pouring out of the Holy Spirit who was designed to take the truth and give it to us. We were going to know that Jesus was in His Father even though he was still on the earth and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. See, again, if we ask the house and we, we try to make a doctrine out of it, we throw stumbling blocks in our own path. We know that I'm in you, or you're in me, and I'm in you. So here's the second half of the in equation. Not only are we being taught that God is in us, we are being taught that we are in him. That adds meaning to John 12. I'll draw all to myself. That adds meaning to um, uh, John 1, the Gospel of John, where that light is, is enlightening the heart of every man. Yeah, come on. Um, part of what helps me come to this idea that God is in everyone mm -hmm. John 12.32, and a lot of you may know this, um, when the King James scholars were writing the words in English, if they got nervous about a word, like this isn't really the right translation, yeah. we're putting it in because we think this is right, they would put it in italics. If uh -huh. any of you have King James or New King James, you'll see yeah. in John 12.32, men or peoples is in italics. It is. The it, context it does not exist in the, in the Greek. And the context of the previous verse is judgment. If we stay in context, I will draw all judgment to myself. In other words, when we come in contact with someone, we think they don't have God because, after all, look. Look, they need to be judged, yeah. It's been taken care of. Yeah. And so it also doesn't follow, like what you're saying makes sense. God is in, why would he need to draw men to him? He's already in them. So it, this is clicking with me because I always had trouble with John 12, 32 because peoples were in italics. I'm like, okay, the translators yeah. were saying that word isn't really there. Yeah, we just tackled the whole idea of the cosmos and Jesus said, I didn't come to judge the cosmos, but to save it. When you spread it out big like that, it leaves room to understand that he's in us, but the process isn't over just because of that. It's actually just begun. The redemptive process is happening because he's in us. Another way to, to, to ask some questions like this is if there wasn't something sown into humans of God and of the Spirit, how in the world would we even hear the call of the gospel? How would we even hear the invitation to come to Jesus? You know, I've always had a, a hard time with the mechanics of depravity when I was involved in Reformed theology. Because, I mean, a dead guy can't respond. That's the whole point of being dead in, in, in your sins and trespasses. 
But that was a kind of a theology that was easy to talk about in one line, but it was confusing on the other, because then how does somebody respond? So does Jesus have to raise us a little bit? And then are we going to go into a heretical doctrine? Well, everybody's dead, but Jesus is going around individually raising people to like half-life so they can respond to the gospel. No, no. The thing I, I, I thought was kind of beautiful uh, about this, and again, I don't put these out as doctrine, but it was really ministering to my heart, is when I felt like the Father said, um, we regained. So imagine this. Imagine Mary hugging Jesus, wrapping Him and hugging Him, like any mother should and would, most likely. Hug that little child. She was loving God with the natural love. She didn't have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. She didn't have to be converted. She didn't have to snot and whine and repent. She just picked up God, the one that Adam hid from and was afraid. She picked him up and held him to her bosom and cherished him. And so when I felt like the Lord said, and if this wasn't the Lord, this is brilliant to me, but when I felt, I said, we regained a foothold in creation in those moments that had been lost and obscured for seasons. Ah! This is why this is worth pursuing, guys. Even if we can't nail down all the particulars around the edges, of how. Because it will change the way we both understand God and the people around us. And if, like Ronnie said, it is, and you alluded to it too, Richard, if it is genuinely a matter of people being blinded and deceived through accusations of worthlessness, which of course is what it says the devil is judged for in Revelation, blinded and deceived with accusations of worthlessness, and that they need to awaken. Aren't they going to need somebody to see them for them? To see whose house they are, whose temple you are. Paul says, don't you know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? They need us to recognize Christ in them, the hope of glory. The Gentiles needed Paul to do that. And God needed the whole church to do it. That's why, in the next instance, it's going to be in Cornelius' living room. Yes, Ronnie? Back to that idea of reconciled, be reconciled with God. Uh-huh. Meaning, the concept, the hypothesis I start with is God's in everybody. Mm-hmm. And then what we do with that is part of that reconciliation. We can make a choice and gain a deeper understanding of Him. There is scripture that says the God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded has the minds. Blinded the minds of the unbelievers. That's right. So there, right there, is one possibly one key of trying to understand what's a believer and an unbeliever. Sure. Someone who's blinded. And if somebody's mind, if, if if somebody's delivered from that blindness, how long will their unbelief continue to hold them? If somebody is subject all their life to the fear of slavery because I mean to slavery because of the fear of death once they're not afraid of death anymore how long will it take yes Tim I gotta see if I understand 
in my mind, what was leading up to John 14.20. I know there's always been God. God's always been in us, okay? But there wasn't always a Jesus that we knew on earth. He sent him as son of God, son of man. Mm -hmm. There was a period of time when he showed up, and that was the start of the New Testament, if will, and a new belief in him. There wasn't always on the earth that we recognized the Holy Spirit, right? He was revealed, mm -hmm. and when he was revealed, people either received or they didn't, even till this day. Yeah. Yeah. But that's why John 14, 20 makes sense to me, that God is in everybody. In that day makes sense when you said, in that day, the Spirit revealed. Right. Because once people get a hold of... Not just of, revealed intellectually, but revealed yes. in His own person. In the, in being the poured out into people. Yeah. Now, I, I, I would caution us, because I caution myself, let's not get locked into linear thinking and think that the people of the old can't have anything like that or whatever. Because Jesus plainly said, Abraham looked for my day, waited for my day, longed for my day, and he saw it. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it there's evidence throughout the, the, the New Testament that people like Abraham and and that God interfaced with David and did stuff like this. David was a man of, that received grace. So we got to be careful to realize that God also is not contained in time and restricted by it in the same way we are. Right. So uh, you explained once where where Jesus was even in shown in Genesis. Yeah. Yeah. And I understood that. Okay. But now he said, I never leave you nor forsake you, but he gave us the Holy Spirit, right? That was only after Christ died and was resurrected. Uh, yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, so, I, that's the way I get it. Like out of John 7, this hadn't happened because he hasn't been glorified yeah, yet. Okay. It's kind but, of thing. Yeah, like I said, I believe that Jesus is in us. I think what it takes is recognize that Jesus is in us and believing in him. Yeah. That's what activates the relationship. Am I right in thinking that? I, I think activates the relationship. I don't know exactly what you mean by that. But well, I just mean that, you know, if Jesus is in you, he's in everybody. Yeah. But they have to recognize that he's in them. To get the benefit. To have it. the benefit of the relationship. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yes, Meg. Well, that scripture... Um, he, uh, he said he would never leave us nor forsake us. Doesn't that anchor in, though, what the fact that we're, he's in us from the beginning, from the very beginning? It I seems mean, that's like it's not does, conditional. Yeah, it, it seems like yeah. it doesn't seem like that was a statement spoken only to people who had accepted him. And now right. I'm not, you've accepted me, invited me in, and I'm never going to leave you. That seemed like a statement as they were being prepared to be dispersed to the world. I'll never right. leave you or forsake you. Right. Now, I, I know people that interpret that, that on that missionary calling, he'll never leave or forsake. But uh, but if he's in us from the very beginning, why that's why would that be conditional? Right. Why right. it should have been. Yeah. Just and then, an you know, one of the one of the philosophic arguments, uh, theological arguments is if you're going to say that that God who made you and through whom all things were made and for him, and by him, and through whom everything is held together, if he isn't in you, what manner of existence do you have? You know, if he's not holding you together, if he's not in there somehow, and, uh, and, and that, that, would, that would be a challenge. All right, let me real quick go on. I want to catch this. We'll, we won't spend very much time on this one. But this is when uh, Peter went to Cornelius' house, and uh, of him all, it would just say, of him all the prophets bear witness in his name, everybody who believes, in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, see, here's one of the things, though. We have a tendency, if you come out of my theological background, Baptist, Assemblies of God, 
uh, charismatic. The forgiveness of sins we equate with being saved. Uh, but, but we forgive sins all the time without saving somebody. And Jesus called us all to forgive sins. And so I don't think that we ought to make that equation. And what this does, this thing about him being in us, we have to begin to disassociate some of the words that we associate together. Like, you know, like being saved or like being judged or like being damned or whatever the case is. So, but anyway, the point, I thought this was a beautiful story because while Peter was still speaking these words, meaning he hadn't finished the message. The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Confirming, before Paul got the revelation, that God saw the hope of the Gentiles as Christ in them. The hope of glory. Now, Cornelius was a... A, a, a faithful Gentile. He believed in God. He gave alms. He did all this kind of stuff. So again, I'm not suggesting at all that believing is not important. Matter of fact, I think believing is more important. And I think if we have a clear understanding of Christ in us as the hope of glory, we will really come to understand what believing is for. And it won't just be a simple black or white act that gets us into a position to be saved. It will actually be the thing that causes us to be transformed from glory to glory into the image of Christ from within us, I think. Okay. The last one. Oh, I'll read the, I'll read the second one because it's kind of short. So this is what God also said it looked like, which led me to the Acts stuff. It looks like my promise finding a place both on and inside the faith-filled ones in the upper room. That baptism, my spirit flooded each of them with me by my spirit by Jesus' Spirit. It too was a birth, a real, visible revealing for all to see of restored and reunited life. My life, my son's life, by my Spirit, truly out of humanity's innermost life and being flowed rivers of living water from inside them. Exactly in the same manner, uh, it looked like the river of living water cascading from within Cornelius in his household, his family, and his servants, and his friends that day, interrupting Peter's beautiful exposition of my redemption. No doctrinal exposition necessary. All right. The last thing the Lord said led me to this. It looks like my beautiful bride, my daughter, my body, coming down from above, born from above. She is the promise. She is the object of celebration. She is in me, and I am in the midst of her. And out from the midst of her flows the river of the waters of life. And I am in the midst of her. Jesus is the light. And I thought about Revelation. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now I want you to get this triplet thing going in your mind as we read the rest of this. The invasion of God's redemptive plan came to a young woman. And it, it was characterized almost exclusively by God 
being in her by the power of the Spirit. In Mary, in Israel, in humanity. And then this next episode in Acts was God by the Spirit being in and flowing out with that river of living water that Jesus spoke about in John 7 that couldn't happen until this all happened, like you said, Tim. It was in this body that is now this one new man, that's now this unified representation of Jesus. Inside, flowing out. And now we have the bride. And what's the characteristic of the bride? And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance. What are we talking about? Let me show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Having the, her brilliance was like the very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had great and high wall with twelve gates, and the gates were twelve angels, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west, and the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Just pause for a second and think of there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's a slave nor free. There's one new man. This is what Jesus has done. And he's done it from inside Israel and inside the Gentiles. Inside the body. So is it so hard to believe that he's in us? I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Where is this temple? Inside the bride. I know it's apocalyptic language, and I could be completely a loony man interpreting it this way. But I don't think so. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Where was the throne of God and the Lamb? It was in the bride. It was in the bride. This is the conclusion. The beginning. Where was God? He was in Mary. As the church began to manifest, where was God? He was in the body. Now, as as everything is wrapping up, In the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve fruits, kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. If you go back and and read closely in Exodus what God talking about what he wanted to do. Uh, he said, I want to come and be in the midst of you. I want to be your God. You're going to be my people. I want to be in the midst of you. God's desire, his relationship with people has always been to have them in the midst of him and him to be in the midst of us. That is what it means for him to be our God and us to be his people in his mind. Now, whatever it means to us and however we want to religiousize that or however we want to ignore that, 
it's never changed and it's going to manifest fully in the concluding of all things. And his bondservants will serve him and they will see his face and his name will be on their forehead and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Now, this could go right back to Jen's original question. Who are we talking about? Because just in the next couple of verses it talks about and no unclean thing will come in there and outside will be a bomb or so on and so forth. This does raise a lot of questions. But what I'm what I'm okay with about raising those questions is the other doesn't raise questions. The idea of a gospel built around separation and abandonment. That doesn't raise questions of... of, uh, It raises judgment. We're constantly looking around, first of all, to try to find out whether we're in or out or if somehow we violated our prerogative or we're looking at other people to see whether they're in or out. If we start understanding... And if, if, if this is correct, and I believe it is, if we start intentionally asking to have the eyes of the Spirit, to have the eyes of the Father, to see people the way Jesus sees them, judgment will begin to fade away as an option for us. And we will find that if we read a little bit further, Jesus said, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me. And a little bit further still, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Come, all you who are thirsty and drink freely of the water of life. Remember Jesus said, If you're thirsty, come and drink, and out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. Then after that admonition, it says the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Even when it's describing the fact that no unclean thing will go in there and that outside will be the idolaters and the whoremongers and the, all the liars and stuff. Fearful. Call fearful. How many people? Fearful. That's, a, that's an amazing one to be included. But it immediately says that the gates of the city will never be shut. Now, is Jim still on? Yeah, Jim asked me last time, what are the implications of Christ being in everybody for universal salvation? And I would say this, it has some. It has some. But it is not uh, a one-step process that if you believe that Christ is in everybody, that you believe everybody is saved, depending on what you mean by saved. It, it doesn't take away the process. It doesn't take away the need for belief. Now, I've got beliefs, and they're growing, and they're changing. And... Uh, I'll talk about that in more detail later. But I want to be honest. When you start poking at this, if Christ is in everybody, you can't just write them off. If Christ is in everybody, you can't just envision them contrary to Scripture and preceding the great white throne of judgment, getting hit by a bus during a riot and ending up burning in hell tomorrow. Because that probably isn't happening. (laughs) Because... The Bible lays a sequence of events out before it even talks about the lake of fire. So yes, this will challenge. Correct, Jen? (laughs) Just thinking about it will challenge. But let me tell you why, and then I'm going to close. And then I can say hi to the Zoom folks. Let me tell you why I think it's worth thinking about. Because if if we are right in thinking that God fundamentally manages through separation 
because of sin, we will have the same sort of judgmental, separatist, isolationistic church life that plagues most of Western Christianity. We are fundamentally irrelevant to everybody on the face of the planet that doesn't go to our church and think our way. And then even if we all believe in Jesus, we it takes two or three things to get us to split up as evidenced by 41,000 different denominations. On the other hand, if God dealt with humanity as one group in Christ, then we have a fundamental familial relationship with every person on the planet. And we have reasons for pressing through the obnoxiousness that separates us, be it ours or theirs. And I think it's worth exploring. Because the people that we trust to build the other gospel, like Paul in his writings, said, when it pleased the Father who had called me from my mother's womb to proclaim Christ in the Gentiles, when it pleased him to reveal Christ in me. Remember what was going on when Christ was revealed to be in Paul by God. He was on his way to Damascus with papers to arrest and imprison Christians. What a piece of baggage to be carrying on a mission like that. So, Father, as I have said many times, and will say many more, I don't trust how I see things. And this is a complicated thing. But it's not really as complicated as I think we make it. It's not as contrary. Because when you chose to come into the earth to redeem people, you chose to do it by coming inside a young woman. When you chose to birth the church, you chose to baptize them in you. And when we see your bride taking either a final or an introductory to the age of ages eternity form in the form of that heavenly city, New Jerusalem, the place where we find you is in the midst of her. Those three instances alone make it worth our time, Father, to consider that when Paul spoke about the mystery which had been hidden from ages past but has now been revealed to the saints. And Father, maybe that's a clue. Yes, the revelation is to the saints, but the truth is to everybody. Maybe that's one of those distinctions between believer and unbeliever. But it, it behooves us, I think, and I ask for myself and for the sweet friends here at Joyland and those that are listening and that will get this message out to you. Help us see people as you see them and help us know if and if so that you are in them from the start. I thank you for this. I thank you, Jesus, for being the Savior of all. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, for the work that you do making this true.
making us understanding, even if we can't figure out all the how. Father, if in any way we're erring in the direction we're looking, I pray that you would bring correction and make that clear. But open our heart to the reality of Christ in us and in our neighbors and in our enemies is the hope of glory. Amen.